Warning, sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. Welcome back to Defining Deviant Podcast. I have taken a bit of a break for the last few weeks, as I'm sure you've noticed, because I was moving from British Columbia, Canada, over to Alberta, Canada, a different province. I had to wait till I could set up my studio and had to do some flooring, but thankfully everything is done and set up now, so I can actually get back to recording. I do have two guests that will be upcoming in the next probably few weeks or months that have confirmed they will be coming on. One individual will be coming on to talk about their experiences with domestic violence, which included both physical and sexual violence. And another individual will be coming on to talk about the intersection between disability and sexuality and how the intersection of those identities often come with a lot of stigma. I am looking forward to getting those recorded and will hopefully be releasing those to you soon. Since the guest podcast will be taking a little bit, I decided to get back on to the sex crimes that I was previously talking about before taking the hiatus. We left off talking about sexual offending and the law and covered most of the sexual crimes that don't include sexual assault last time. This time we will be talking specifically about sexual assault, and there are three levels to that. But I'm also going to bring in some of the factors that are related to victimization in a very brief way and introduce the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls that account for a large portion of violence towards women in Canada, because that's something we need to be taking account for as we discuss these crimes. I will go into a lot more detail about victimization in the future and what sort of characteristics have been found to be related, but I did want to focus specifically on the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, considering a lot of the current context that's within the law and a lot of the colonial history that's coming up within our news right now. When it comes to sexual assault, if we come down to the first level of sexual assault in Canada, according to the Criminal Code, Sexual assault is any non-consensual touching or physical contact between two persons that has a sexual nature. This offense is obviously very broadly defined and that is done to be inclusive. The crimes that consist of this first level of sexual assault could range all the way from a direct penetrative rape to a brief kiss to even just the grab of someone's buttocks or their breasts at a bar. For non-consensual touching, to be considered a sexual assault instead of that quote-unquote normal assault or regular assault, there must be some sort of sexual aspect to the physical contact between the accused and the complainant. Obviously there are going to be some gray areas involved in here, but Non-consensual touching of a person's sex organs uh, is generally considered sexual assault, but the court is going to consider the circumstances of the touching generally and what body parts were touched. It is also not necessary for the person to gain any sexual gratification for the act to be considered a sexual assault. 
This means that, for example, if the individual does not have an orgasm or doesn't outwardly have any sort of sexual pleasure from it, that doesn't mean it will be deemed a sexual assault and someone can just say that that wasn't their intention. For a person to be convicted of sexual assault, it must be clearly shown that the complainant did not consent to the sexual contact that occurred. The person must be capable of actually giving that consent to the sexual contact and the consent must be freely given. So we go back to the typical example of if an individual is extremely intoxicated, that individual has not given their consent because according to the law, that's not true consent given that they were so intoxicated that they may not have been making those decisions for themselves. That's the first level of sexual assault. If we move on to the second level of sexual assault, this is when the offender uses or threatens to use a weapon, threatens the victim's friends or family members, causes bodily harm to the victim, or commits the assault with another person, so multiple assailants. When talking about sexual assault level 2, I wanted to go in to give some examples of what these crimes could be, and I chose to do so using the information from Canley. Canley is a free open publication of law and it provides public access to legal documents. As a person that is very interested in forensic psychology, you can imagine that I'd like to refer to court cases and see what the actual evidence was. This is a really beneficial way that you can do so. So I went to the Canley website and searched sexual assault with a weapon. And there were there are many cases that you can go and look up, but I just chose two brief cases to cover. The first case discussed was R.V. Boalog, and this involved the use of a weapon. The line that I took directly from the court files, which is referring to the case, states that the offender told F.S. he had a knife and she felt the blade of a knife during the sexual assault. When she was compliant, he would put the knife in his pocket. You can see that in this example, the offender had a knife and threatened to use it, although he did not actually use it on the victim. However, for the purposes of charging him, it doesn't actually matter if he used the knife or not. He is still, he is still threatening to use a weapon on someone, which involves that psychological distress for the victim, even if they were not physically harmed from it. So in this circumstance, he was charged and convicted of sexual assault with a weapon, which is that second level of sexual assault. The second case that I looked up was R versus Sanghar, and this is a case directly from a correctional institution. Depending on uh, what offense occurs within the correctional institution, either things can be dealt with within the correctional institution and they'll have kind of penalties within the institution, or if it's deemed to be high enough of a criminal charge, they will send it to court and they will be charged that way. In this example, the individuals were referred for criminal charges through the court. So the quote with regards to this one is, in addition to his own act of sexual assault with a weapon, Sighar actively assisted in the assault by Sanghar by physically holding BT down while Sanghar penetrated him from behind. Two inmates were co-defendants for the crimes, and you can see from that quote that one of the individuals essentially held the individual down while the other anally raped him. 
Although only one of the offenders actually penetrated the victim, both were charged with that second level of sexual assault. Because if you remember at the beginning, it states that this second level includes multiple assailants. If we move from the second level of sexual assault to the third level, the third and final level of sexual assault is the highest severity in terms of aggravated sexual assault. And this is when the offender wounds maims or disfigures the victim or endangers the victim's life. So again, I went and looked up some examples and did not choose a graphic one for this, but I did choose one that posed an interesting question. When individuals often think about aggravated sexual assault, they tend to think of serious physical injuries, but this instance was one where that was not the case. So in R versus Felix, the offender was charged with aggravated sexual assault for not disclosing his HIV status before having sex with the victim. The quote from that case is, NS testified that the appellant did not disclose his HIV positive status prior to engaging in sexual activity with her. She said that although condoms were visible and readily available in the appellant's apartment, the couple did not discuss using a condom, and a condom was not in fact used when they had intercourse. This brings us to the question of why would not disclosing HIV status fall under aggravated sexual assault? And it's important to acknowledge that although the individual may not immediately be impacted by the virus, the virus can still result in life-threatening circumstances. So in this case, the judge accepted the victim's versions of the events and inferred that if they had been informed, they would not have had sex with the offender, and therefore Felix was convicted of that aggravated sexual assault. Those are the descriptions of the levels of sexual assaults, but I want to discuss more about crime statistics as well as a little bit of information about victimization, specifically with regard to sexual assault in Canada. It's important to consider when we are discussing crime statistics that what is defined as a sexual offense will vary depending on the culture and the context in which the action is taking place. For example, under the apartheid system in South Africa, prosecution of sexual assault only occurred when the victim was female and white. Therefore, sexual assault of black women was considered socially acceptable in that context, and these women were not treated as victims despite the fact that they were. There are also other places, such as rural India, where child marriages take place, leading to sexual relationships between adult men and underage girls. And there still continues to be legal battles to now challenging the child marriage prevention laws in terms of people wanting to go back to what was previously the case. I mention these factors because it's important to consider how these things may impact crime statistics and why or why not people across various places and cultures may report or not report sex crimes. It's also important to consider that although I gave you examples of other countries there, these issues are not removed from our own country and we really need to pay attention to that. One such example is that of Bountiful BC. Bountiful BC is located in the southeast of British Columbia, kind of near Cranbrook. It is named after a place called Bountiful in the Book of Mormon, and its population consists of two polygamist Mormon fundamentalist groups. 
Polygamist, again, is when the husband can have multiple wives, but is not extended to the wife, so she cannot have multiple husbands. With regards to Bountiful, we have seen numerous allegations of abuse as well as child marriages, but it has been extremely difficult to have victims come forward in these cases. The individual called Winston Blackmore is the leader of one of these groups in Bountiful. In his recent court case, he was found guilty of polygamy, and it was stated in the court documents that he had been married 25 times, including marrying nine girls under the age of 18, four who were 15 years old. This is just one example of these types of behaviors that we tend to think wouldn't happen in Canada are happening and are happening with somewhat regular frequency, and we need to be aware of that. Without knowledge of what is actually going on, we can't make changes to what is going on. Similar to many crimes within Canada, sexual assault is underreported, but it is really important to note that the most vulnerable people to sexual assault in Canada are individuals such as New Canadians, people with mental illness, Indigenous peoples, people from low socioeconomic status or low income, and also sex workers. And these are often the least likely to also report. I'm going to be addressing a lot of these factors in future podcasts, but for now I'm just going to give a little bit of an example in terms of uh, sexual violence rates. If you go to the Patreon that is set up for Defining Deviant now, I am providing the notes with various tables if they're relevant or information about the podcast uploaded to Patreon for free so you don't have to join. I'm going to be putting the links to the podcast as well as all the notes up there for accessibility purposes so I'm not charging anybody for that. If you want to go and see some of the things I'm talking about, if it's, if it's relevant, I'll include it in the notes. This particular one, I have a table in front of me, and it's looking at sexual violence rates in 2009 and 2013 among various countries. If we're looking at the rate per 100,000, that is called the per capita. So that's telling us essentially how many people are being sexually assaulted per 100,000 people in that country. Canada in this table appears to have actually a rate that is quite high compared to some of the other countries listed. We see in Africa some of the rates are about 10.2, 10.8 across the years, but when we look to, let's say, Ireland, we're at 33.6 and then 43.7. This is across the two time frames. India, 6.8, 9.3. And if we look at Canada, we have 73.5 and 75.6. As mentioned, we really need to take consideration of what the differences may be in the data when we're talking about these things and why those differences might be so broad. As we've started talking about, different countries may define sexual violence in different ways, and this can lead to extremely inaccurate comparisons. It's also really critical to understand whether the definition has changed over time and whether there are cultural issues that have been occurring that have led to failure of disclosure of sexual violence. If people are not willing to disclose the sexual violence that is occurring, then there's going to be an artificial deflation of those rates for that country. If we consider just North America and how they conduct their crime statistics gathering, 
The USA uses the Uniform Crime Reports, and this includes over 18,000 law enforcement agencies reporting their crime data. However, in the US, the agencies that submit this information only have to do it voluntarily. Relying on voluntary crime data submission is, again, going to be problematic when some districts or some places may be not wanting to report crimes for a variety of different reasons. In Canada, we also have the Uniform Crime Reports, and this collects information on all police-reported crime. Unlike the U.S., this is mandatory for all police agencies, and this survey collects information from over a thousand police detachments and represents more than 184 police forces. Another system that developed in the USA is the National Incident-Based Reporting System. This is meant to collect additional details on crimes, but it gets a bit confusing because not all states contribute to the report and not all jurisdictions within each state contribute. But in 2012, it assessed about 30% of the population and accounted for about 28% of all U.S. crime. There is still really a large portion of crimes that are not being accounted for within that particular survey. And to give an example, I'll go over their data regarding forcible rape within that survey. In that survey, forcible rape is considered part of the forcible sex offenses section. This also includes forcible sodomy, sexual assault with a weapon, and forcible fondling. And remember, these are different. This is U.S. law, so it sounds a little bit different. According to the 2012 data, for forcible rape, 95% of the offenders were male, 60% were white, and 55% were between the ages of 16 and 35. In terms of victims, 98% were women, 76% were white, and 37% were between the ages of 11 and 20. We can even see from the characteristics given there that it's missing quite a bit of its data because predominantly white women are actually not the individuals that are assaulted at the highest rates. It would be individuals such as trans black women. There are a few more U.S. crime surveys that go on, such as the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System, National Violence Against Women Survey, and then also the Crime Victimization Survey. There are places that collect these sorts of statistics, but again, we have to be worried on what information is actually coming out of it. According to the Victimization Survey, which looks at unreported crime, this survey indicated that up to 65% of rapes went unreported from 2006 to 2010. We see that there is a big gap in those that are reporting versus not. The question of who is victimized in sexual assault is obviously a difficult question because of the data gaps that we have, but we do know that there is overrepresentation of racial minority groups within the criminal justice system. Despite Canada having a reputation for being tolerant and being full of diversity, Canada has been subject to the same moral panics regarding immigrant criminality and discriminatory practices and treatment of racial minorities in the criminal justice system that countries such as the U.S. have also experienced. When we are thinking about the criminal justice system, we really must consider what the perceptions are of the Canadian police and criminal courts by these minority groups. We cannot assume that because we think that the courts are operating at the appropriate level that that is what's happening. This means 
actually critically examining the evidence for racial bias in our criminal justice system. And we can look to even as recently as there was a really long time ban on race crime statistics, which prevented thorough study of crime issues related to minority populations, and it also hindered efforts to eliminate systemic racism, because when we don't have the statistics to rely on to show these impacts that they're having, we cannot move forward. We only saw that recently in July of 2020, Statistics Canada offered to start collecting race-based crime data, and they are in the position where they now state that they will collect it. But the question remains of why it took until July 2020 to do so when we've had long-standing evidence of the disproportionate impact on racialized communities within Canada. If we look to victimization patterns of sexual assault within Canada, and this is specifically from Statistics Canada, females are more likely to be victims of sexual offenses than any other type of violent offense. So for example, in 2002, women represented approximately half of all the victims of violent offenses. So it was about 50% women, 50% men. But when we look specifically to sexual offenses, women made up 85% of those assaults. And these were those that were reported to a sample of police services. We need to recognize that sexual aggression and sexual violence towards women is a widespread Canadian society issue, as well as many other societies. But women often experience multiple incidents of this crime within their lifetimes. And this is often termed gendered violence, that this violence towards women is becoming, has become so societal that it is a societal issue now. And we see that in the prevalence rates of how often women die, even within their domestic relationships. Women are also more likely to be victims of more serious levels of sexual assault. So a CCJS report on sex offenders found that relative to males, females were more likely to be victims of sexual assaults two and three, and less apt to be victims of other sorts of sexual assaults or less physically injurious forms of assault. Adult victims were also more likely to be the victims of these more injurious behaviors compared to the level 1 assaults which were most often perpetrated against children. Although consistently fewer victims were male, they make up a relatively high percentage of the cases of young children who are victims of sexual offenses. And this bears out in the literature I've seen as well because a lot of offenders who offend against children do offend against males, so it's not just primarily against females when we're looking at that young child category. Important to note is that young females and children are at the highest risk of becoming victims of sexual assault. And these are also the groups which make up the largest proportion of residents within our unhoused shelters in Canada. Despite children and youth under the age of 18 making up only a fifth of our population, about 21%, unfortunately they accounted for 61% of the victimization for sexual offenses reported to the police. Youth are paying a lot of the price associated with these offenses. The highest number of police reported sexual offenses were against girls between the ages of 11 to 19, peaking at around 13. And if we're looking at that per capita rate of the 100,000, so we saw Canada had an average of what, 73.5? The rate among these girls is 781 per 100,000 population. So it's extremely high during the age range of 11 to 19.
other research literature by author Roberts has shown that women with disabilities are at higher risk of being victimized by sexual assault, but also that more than half of those who perpetrated against them were actually those within the healthcare system. A 1990 study of women who had been placed into psychiatric institutions found that 37% of them had been sexually assaulted during their adulthood, and another study showed that of women with disabilities, 63% indicated that while they were in an institution, they had been assaulted by someone in the healthcare system. These are the individuals that are supposed to be helping the vulnerable and are actually those that have perpetrated in these cases against them. If we look to the idea of intersectional identities, it's critical to understand that disadvantaged females in Canadian society are particularly vulnerable to being victimized by sexual assault. This includes women with disabilities and those who are institutionalized, Indigenous women, single, separated or divorced women, and women who are unemployed or have low incomes and they are all at heightened risk of being sexually assaulted. Stimson and Best, their research found that 40% of women with disabilities have been assaulted, sexually assaulted, or abused in some way. Those researchers estimated that 83% of women with disabilities will be assaulted, sexually assaulted, or abused in their lifetimes. Those are huge numbers. And if we look to Another critical thing that I want to talk about and something that we're going to continue talking about through this podcast is the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls within Canada. We saw that the National Inquiry's final report found that there is persistent and deliberate human and Indigenous rights violations within Canada and that those abuses are a root cause of Canada's extremely high rates of violence against Indigenous women, girls, and the 2LGBT plus community. This report called for legal and social changes to transform this situation because it is continuing to devastate Indigenous communities across the country. The final report included truths of more than 2,300 family members, survivors of violence, experts and knowledge keepers over a two-year period, and it resulted in 231 individual calls for justice. Unfortunately, the National Inquiry could not determine the exact number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada because unfortunately thousands of women's deaths or disappearances have likely gone unrecorded for many decades. Because of this, there are likely many, many more than we know, which means the rates are much higher than we know. And what we do know is what connects all of these deaths is colonial violence, racism, and oppression. And if you have not read the final report, I would suggest that you do, because the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls is not going anywhere within Canada, and neither is the idea of colonial violence. In terms of understanding colonial violence, Colonial violence has become embedded into our everyday Canadian life, and this occurs through various means, including interpersonal forms of violence, but also institutional through our healthcare system, through our criminal justice system, and also through our government systems, such as laws and policies. The result of these forms of violence is that many Indigenous peoples have grown up normalized to violence, while Canadian society has continued to show apathy 
to actually addressing this issue. The final report from the National Inquiry stated that this amounts to genocide, what is going on with these women and girls. We are not doing anything to try and stop it. We have taken minimal steps to do anything even since this report. I wanted to talk about one aspect of the final report, which is the four pathways that are maintaining colonial violence. And the reason I want to talk about this is because the final report noted how critical the continued colonial violence within Canada is to continuing this pattern of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So I'm going to read direct quotes from those four pathways just so you can get an understanding. And I know that this information can be hard to digest, but it is important that we enter these situations with our eyes open and that as we go through this podcast discussing sexual violence and discussing sexual crime, that we also have the lens of colonial violence on it and understand how this contributed to the situations that we currently see. In terms of the first pathway, maintaining colonial violence, the report stated that historical, multi-generational, and intergenerational trauma refers to the collective emotional, spiritual, and psychological pain people endure because of traumatic events stemming from historic and current policies, such as surviving residential school or the violent loss of a loved one. The second pathway is that social and economic marginalization is another root cause of violence against First Nations, Inuit, and Métis women, girls, and two LGBT plus Q people. Social and economic marginalization ensures that the structures of the past are carried forward into contemporary systems of oppression. In particular, the ongoing dispossession of Indigenous peoples through policies that worsen or maintain the poor conditions that people live in demonstrates how, in many rights, areas, social and economic marginalization is a direct contributor to violence. The third pathway is that institutions and governments' clear desire to maintain the status quo and their lack of will to make real change also leads to violence for family members and survivors. This refers to the ways in which governments, institutions, and other parties have obfuscated their responsibilities towards these peoples. In the justice system, the healthcare system, child welfare, and in other situations, witnesses commonly described an institutional culture that makes women and two LGBT plus people feel as though violence they are experiencing is due to their own personal failures rather than the colonial violence we are discussing. And finally, the pathway discussed for the fourth was witnesses regularly pointed to encounters that ignore the agency and expertise held by Indigenous women, girls, and two LGBT plus people, particularly given the internalization of patriarchy and misogyny that keeps many women outside of formal political structures. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit women, girls, and two LGBT plus peoples have the solutions to ending violence in their lives at both an individual and in many cases at a community level, but we often refuse to hear it. I outline these because as a settler here in Canada, it's important for me to understand the influence that colonial violence has had on sexual violence within Canada, and oftentimes early in my work it wasn't necessarily something that I had considered. 
it's important to understand at a generational level the impacts that our country has had on Indigenous peoples. And without recognizing what that has been, we can't make changes to what is happening and often still occurring. Missing and murdered Indigenous women still vastly are disproportionately affected. It is an ongoing issue. It is not a historical issue. And part of that uncomfortableness with dealing with this issue is recognizing that it is still an issue and not just historical. So it's important to go and read these documents like the Truth and Reconciliation document, like the final report from the National Inquiry, that really understand and look at what the contributions of our country has been and what we actually need to do moving forward from the lived experiences of these peoples that have been impacted. I want to keep talking about the influence that this sort of colonial structure has on crimes and sexual violence and even sexuality and look at other factors and what is going on because in order to really make change to sexual violence as I believe we need to do, we have to actually look at the truth of what is going on and our own responsibility as a society towards some of the things that have occurred. So I'm really happy to be back at this and I will be hopefully recording with those two guests in the near future, but I will be coming back next time with more information, I think, and I might do a general sexuality podcast, I think, next time and maybe just do some sort of discussion about sex and gender or um, polyamory within marriage. I'm kind of toying with those two, but either way, you'll hear me back again soon. Thanks. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.